Hello, and welcome to the What Manners Most podcast. I'm Thomas Farley, Mr. Manners. Thank you so much for joining me. If I were to ask you what is the most remarkable dinner party you've ever attended, I wonder what your answer might be. My response, easy, is the launch party for a book by food photographer Melanie Dunay called My Last Supper. Melanie had the brilliant idea of asking some of the world's most extraordinary chefs if they had but one night left on planet Earth. Who would be at their dinner party? What would the playlist be? Where would it be? And most important, what would the menu be? You can only imagine the scope of responses she got from chefs, everyone from Jamie Oliver to Gordon Ramsay to Daniel Ballou to the late Anthony Bourdain. Well, the launch party for this book in New York City, over the top. You can only imagine they were not serving pretzels and Cheez-Its at this one. We had samplings from so many of those chefs and so many of their last suppers, their theoretical last suppers, which got me to reflecting, what was my last supper before I went on lockdown? It's been months since I was in a restaurant. And honestly, I really had to think, and I believe it was a restaurant called Jacob's Pickles here on the Upper West Side, where I live in New York with several friends. And it was a great evening, nothing necessarily remarkable. Had we known, all of us then, that that would be our last meal together for quite a long time, at least in a restaurant, I think we probably would have made more of it than we actually did. Which got me further to wondering, what will it be like once we all start slowly returning to restaurants as restaurants slowly begin opening their doors for patrons to sit inside and not simply do takeout or sit in an outdoor area? What is the new etiquette of restaurant attendance and what will that experience be for patrons? And I can think of no better person to help us sort through those questions than long time, 30 year long time, Esquire Magazine, Best New Restaurants of the Year writer, John Mariani. John is a food and restaurant historian filled with wisdom that I know is going to help us guide us through this next chapter once we all go out and not be having our last supper, but having our first supper after this pandemic. My conversation with John Mariani coming right up. And we are back with longtime journalist, food and travel writer, author of 15 books, John Mariani. Welcome to What Manners Most. Thank you. It's really great to speak to you after some time, Tom. When I think about what's going on in the world of restaurants today, I'm hoping you can give us some historical context. What lessons have you drawn from the way specifically the restaurant industry has returned and barreled back after even some of our greatest economic setbacks of the past? Restaurants are irreplaceable, and they are things that people adore. I think it was Samuel Johnson who said, man thinks of nothing with more favor than a good meal at a tavern at the end of the day. But historically speaking, the restaurant as we know it, where you and I go in through the door, we have a reservation, sit at the table, that's a very new concept in human history. Only going back to after the French Revolution, before that, in the Middle Ages, in ancient Rome and ancient Egypt, biblical times, there was nothing ever more than a tavern to eat at. And those are usually long roads where people had to stop and get something to eat. And what they had to eat was just whatever was there to eat. There was no choice in the matter. After Napoleon, 
all of the aristocrats cooks were the best chefs on earth so they had to do something okay they were just thrown out of business because all of their employers were being beheaded they said what are we going to do well there was a rising merchant class in france at that time and they were opening these things called restaurants which are as we would describe them today where you go in and order from a menu and have a glass of wine or a bottle of wine. And as a matter of fact, the term bistro is said to come from the Russian word bistra, bistra, which is which means quickly, quickly, which is what the Russian troops who entered Paris after the Napoleonic Wars ended were said to have said when they wanted a meal, having themselves no history of restaurants at all or never having been in one. So that was the first instance of plucking victory from the jaws of defeat inventing the restaurant for one thing and then taking it forward so that you have restaurants and you have bistros and you have charcuteries and places where people who have more money could eat and then just staying with france paris was absolutely bereft of food in the 1870s because the prussians were invading them and they just pretty much closed off the city and that people were going around eating dogs and, and cats quite literally the wealthy people, however, still had access to butchers. And although they didn't have their poulet de bresse, what they did have were animals from the zoo. One chronicler of the time said, we're going through the whole Noah's Ark of animals here. Wow. Well, you know, that passed too. And then we get into the later part of the 19th century, in which that was the great golden age of French restaurants after this devastation that had happened to their, uh, their city of Paris before that. And then, of course, you have famines and you have cholera. And even after World War I and the Spanish flu, which killed millions of people all over the world. By the 1920s, as anybody who has read F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway and all of those lost generation Americans who went to Europe, Paris was booming with bistros in Montparnasse and Saint-Germain. And then there were the big, big restaurants, too, the big deal restaurants, some of which, like Le Grand Vefour, uh, little, which is still open today, dates back to the Napoleonic era. So um, even during the 1930s and the Depression, things were tough. Consider that cities that have been done in by pandemics in the past, such as the Spanish flu, and completely devastated, like Dresden, like Hiroshima, like Nagasaki, and other cities around the world. Even Germany had a rebound by the 1950s. Read the original Ian Fleming, James Bond books to see that he was living pretty high in the hog in Istanbul, in Berlin, in London, everywhere Bond went. He was eating the finest food, the best caviar, drinking the best champagnes. This was still in the 1950s, which we think of as a, a, a deprived period. So I think I would be naive at the very least to suggest that the restaurant industry its dire misery at the moment is not going to come back bigger stronger but very different no question in my mind and when you hear tom colicchio saying that 70 percent of the restaurants won't reopen he may be right but you know what 70 percent vacancy will mean that another 70 percent of People who want to run restaurants will fill them. That's always been the case. So you've kind of led us full circle, John, to what I want to examine next. The bulk of what we've been talking about have been either wartime situations 
or financial crises. What we're looking at here with this health crisis is a sea change in the way restaurants may be required to operate if they're still operating safely with respect to social distancing and people wearing masks, things being cleaned far more than they have ever been cleaned before. What are you hearing from the side of the restaurant industry that has started to open up in cities outside of New York? What changes are they making? I saw, for example, the Inn at Little Washington, you probably saw this too. They had kind of 1950s attired mannequins sitting at tables to give the appearance of other patrons in the restaurant, which I thought, well, good for them that they can afford to have tables that are occupied by mannequins. But that's probably not the situation of most restaurateurs who really do count on a full house every night to be able to make any kind of a profit. What are some of the changes you're hearing about that restaurants are making to ensure that their patrons and their staff stay safe? And how do people make go of it with that new reality, at least for the short term to medium term? Two of my sons are in the restaurant business, and one is in a food and beverage director for a hotel in Brooklyn, which is currently closed, but is about to reopen. And they don't know quite what they're going to do. But both of them say, when the vaccine comes, that will be the game changer. My younger son, who works for the Patina Group in New York, is every single day with his other managers, those who are left, crunching numbers. All right, how many dishwashers can we do without? How many cooks do we really need back there? Can we have one guy do both fry and grill? I mean, these are the decisions they are making on an everyday basis. Do we need busboys? No, they're gone. Busboys are gone. The average restaurant, good restaurant, had you go in, there's a maitre d' or a hostess, there's a captain, there's a waiter under the captain, and there's a busboy and a runner under that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like five or six people who are doing very, very good jobs and were necessary up until now, but that ain't going to be the future. You're going to have the managers cleaning tables off. You're going to have the um, the waiters bringing the food. Nobody knows if they can make a go of it with only 50% or 25% of customers. Restaurant business people complain a lot that 10% net is what we look for at the end of the year from the gross profit. So to get that 10% based on 100% with only 50% of your guests is going to be very, very difficult. Anywhere that municipal, state, federal government has reopened a restaurant or a cafe, there are lines out the door to get in. You see this all over America. People are dying to eat out. So I am optimistic. The banks, I hope, have learned a lesson from the Great Depression when greedy idiots that they were pushed people off their farms in the Midwest, we're all seeing grapes of wrath, and the bank ends up owning a derelict house. Mm-hmm. I don't see the point of that at all. Right. I mean, wouldn't you rather have a restaurateur keep his place going, paying you something, and hope to make it up uh, more so at the end of the year than throwing them out? What, are the bank going to run the restaurant? Is the landlord going to go in there with his wife and run the restaurant? So we're in this transition phase right now. As you say, we've got people lining up maybe around the the block, six feet apart, trying to do their takeout as restaurants are slowly opening up around the country. Once the doors are thrown open, and I know some cities that is taking place already, although I think it's fairly limited around the U.S., once that happens, what can we really anticipate as patrons? What should we expect 
How should we act? How will our etiquette change how we conduct ourselves inside a restaurant? What I expect is that you and I will go to a restaurant that has opened its doors. We may have may not have been able to get a reservation as easily as we would before because they only have half the tables. It's going to be peopled by waiters and managers who are probably wearing masks again till we have a vaccine. The tables will probably be bare, not because they don't want to have clean, hygienic, sanitary tablecloths on them, but because they can't afford that. That's a luxury now, having a tablecloth. That costs a lot of money to put on there. Things like glassware, silverware, they're not going to have Villeroy Bach on the plate since anymore. They're not going to have Christoffel silverware. I can guarantee you they are going to fall over themselves to really be nice to you because I think that 90% of us on the other side of the table are going to be particularly nice to them and probably tip more liberally than we used to. That's part of the new etiquette, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll be spending less time there because I don't think a lot of people are going to want to spend three hours at a table just schmoozing and ordering another round of Mai Tais. And pizzerias will probably thrive. Noma in Copenhagen, which was one of those 25-course restaurants, for three, four, five hundred dollars, they have announced we will be for the foreseeable future a hamburger joint. <laughs> you know? And it's going to be kind of fun to see. It's going to, in, in a sense, you know, Tom, it just occurred to me it's going to kind of be like going to Disney World restaurants. They're all themed, they're all family oriented. Overwhelmingly, the service have been trained by Disney to just bend over backwards to be nice to these people who have been good enough to come to your restaurant and had a hard day and are stressed out. I think that's the new etiquette that snobbism, which pretty much vanished from hoity-toity restaurants 25 years ago, you just don't find that anymore. On top of it all, we have to realize that people who are in the restaurant business, and especially those who run restaurants, they can't do anything else, not because they're incapable of it, but they really love it. They mm -hmm. love nothing more than serving us food without pretension. And with you coming up afterwards at six feet away and saying, Tony, you know, you haven't lost it. We used to come here three times a week. Maybe we can only come here once. But Tony, this is still my favorite place. And thanks for being here. Will we as patrons be wearing masks? Will we be seated distant from our dining companions at our tables? And will there be large group parties, say birthday parties in uh, private dining rooms? Will that be happening? The latter, I don't think so. Or, well, if you do have a banquet room in the back where you're seating 20, 30 people, they will definitely be wearing the masks. For the foreseeable future, I think that restaurants will make it mandatory to do so. We'll have a sign outside, please wear a mask. And there's going to be a couple of, you know, not a couple, but more than a few belligerent people. We've already seen them mm -hmm. on the news who will refuse. So that that is still a very slippery slope to be handled on a, almost a restaurant by restaurant basis. What about, John, the quintessential greasy spoon? You know, the kind of crowded, maybe not ultra sanitary, but real kind of neighborhood fave. What chance do they stand in an era where people are super concerned about germ transmission? Today, health departments in every city, everywhere, you really have to pass stringent requirements. That's not even something that crosses my mind anymore that, boy, that place looks pretty filthy. Because if he's got an A mark on the door or whatever they use in other cities, uh, that place has been inspected. 
it's an affectionate term to call a place a greasy spoon, but nobody really ever went to those places for the last 40, 50 years. You raise an interesting point. Do you think those Department of Health inspections will include a new layer of surveying for coronavirus preparedness? Oh, you can bet your Clorox bottle they will. Absolutely. If I were a restaurateur, I would say every spare minute you have to my waiter, wipe something down. Every spare second, wipe something down. Let them see you doing it. Any restaurants, John, that you particularly love that you have heard officially are not coming back? Well, I heard one that broke my heart, but then I heard it's going to be, it, it's not true and it will be reopened. It's Harry's Bar in Venice, one of my favorite restaurants in the whole world, which has been owned since the 1930s, since the Cipriani family. And Arrigo Cipriani, who is the current um, owner of Skion with investors, and uh, he did announce that at the age of, I think he's 80. 384. Uh, he says, I can't open Harry's Bar under the stringencies that the city of Venice says we have to operate. I just can't do it. And there was a big cry. But uh, two days later, the other investors say, no, 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 we will work it out. Harry's Bar will, in fact, survive. 11 Madison Park, which is that extravagant 20-course, four-hour dinner type of place, they have announced they will not be reopening at all. That leads me to my last question for you, John. What is the very first place you'll be going after this is all over? We've got the all clear, the magic wand. Where's where's your first destination? It's the easiest question uh, you've asked because just prior to this, March 14th was my wife's birthday. For the last several years, we have booked a table at Liberta Dan. That week, the pandemic hit. I had a reservation for whatever night, Thursday night at seven o'clock. I called them and I said, I'm feeling a little queasy. And they said, don't say another word, Mr. Mariani. We totally understand you're not the only one canceling. What about you, Tom? Where are you going to go? You know, I frankly, John, I'm I'm just so happy to get outside and, and I haven't even been doing takeout. So I'm just so happy to get outside and go to any restaurant. But yeah. You know, I don't know. For some reason, I have a I have a hankering for Del Posto right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I think in New York, Del Posto might be uh, where I'd, I'd like to go. But frankly, anywhere that uh, has got its doors wide open and is uh, and is willing to have me, I'll be I'll be thrilled to sit down and and enjoy something other than my own good home cooking. <laughs> my, my wife is an extraordinary cook, and uh, I think we've had the same dish twice, except for perhaps a steak on the grill. No culinary specialties of your own there, John, that you're contributing to the meal? Yeah, I know how to burn a few things, Tom. <laughs> but, uh, John, thank you so much for giving us this window into what we might anticipate. Obviously, there's a lot of a lot of unknowns in this equation, but I think we all have at least a firmer sense of what we might expect uh, once restaurants do wind up swinging their doors at least three quarters of the way open, if not fully open. John, thank you once again for joining us. And I look forward to whether it's at a a Chinese restaurant or a French bistro, wherever it may be, I look forward to uh, breaking bread with you in the not too distant future. Your expense account or mine, Tom? Uh, Mine, as always. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thanks an awful lot for having me on. Thank you, John. By sheer coincidence, Le Bernardin, the restaurant where John and his wife were to have celebrated her birthday, was also the host 
for the launch party of the My Last Supper book that I told you about at the start of the podcast. And I just found a 2007 New Yorker magazine story, an account of that evening that included Chef Repair's menu for that night. You ready? Black bass tartare, poached white tuna, spiny lobster curry, stuffed capon, hazelnut financier, and a heavenly chocolate poached creme. Sounds amazing to me in particular after how many nights of pasta, home-cooked, and kale. (laughs) I'm ready for something different, but what I'm really ready for is the opportunity to support this restaurant community that really needs us out there dining to the extent that we can, supporting their restaurants, being with friends. And this very same article includes a quote from Eric Repair, which I think is so resonant perhaps even more so now. And the quote is as follows. A last meal means a little bit of time to say goodbye and the luxury of thinking in the last minute what is essential to yourself. I vow that the next time I go to a restaurant and the time after that and the time after that, I am going to treat it as if it were my last meal. I'm going to savor every morsel, both culinary and conversational. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back next time on the podcast where we explore, discover, and distill what manners most.